he ended up, you know, being sectioned into a psychiatric ward, and that was our our first real exposure to mental illness. You know, seeing my dad in a, a situation with people with borderline personality disorder, schizophrenia. Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm Petra Belzebor, and this is the place to discuss tips, tricks, and hacks to build your resilience through your worst rock bottoms and get you to a place of success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life, professionals, individuals who've been through their own adversity, and allow them to share their authentic and real life stories, opinions, and ideas about how to utilize our worst rock bottoms and allow them to catapult us into success. Welcome to the show. Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm really excited today. We've got Paul McGregor on the line. Now we met several months ago now, but it was at a, a conference, a mental health conference, uh, and I put something out on Instagram just saying, who wants to be part of the podcast? And I think you were the first one going, yeah, I'll meet you back backstage, we'll talk, yeah, yeah. It was good, so we got a snippet of your story and I was intrigued and I knew that we had to go deeper on it. So welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you for having me, appreciate it's, it. It's fun to have you, because I know that we share a similar mi mission. So, so let our audience know just a little bit about you. What is it that you're passionate about at the moment? Yeah, so kind of at the moment, um, in terms of, of mental health, is trying to normalize mental health conversations um, in and outside of the workplace. A lot of the work that I do is in the workplace, but I also do a lot of talks and work inside of schools, um, a lot of work with charities as well. So kind of really breaking down that stigma that still surrounds mental health in general. Well, it really does because we, we think and we, and we say that the UK is kind of moving quite quickly in this conversation and a lot more people are normalizing that conversation. But I mean, do you think that we still have a long way to go? 100%. It's, it's one of those where I believe a lot of it is down to conditioning. So the way that, you know, I was conditioned by my parents was the way they were conditioned by their parents and so on and so on. And I believe it's very much the way I see it a next generation you know, approach generations after that is trying to normalize it, as we say, as early as we possibly can. So although it's getting better, it's, there's definitely, you know, the stigma still exists. Absolutely. I definitely see a bit of that. And I know that um, this, this comes from a, a deep place for you uh, based on your own story. Many of us who are in this space have, have been impacted uh, by poor mental health or close family who have suffered in some way. Uh, so tell us a bit about you. Why are you excited about this topic? Why are you driven to, to create change? So my personal story was back in 2009 when I was 18, nearly 19 years old. Um, I lost my dad to suicide. And that was a real shock. You know, my dad, the way I explain it is he had everything on paper. Um, you know, no signs of a mental illness, full-time engineer, part-time physiotherapy business, psychology degree, meditated read self-help books, he ran once if not twice a day, you know, physically healthy, just on paper, like friends, family, on paper. People used to call him perfect. So, you know, the way I explain it is the first 18 years of my life, we were here and like mental illness was here. It's never going to impact me and my family. Um, and then it did. And um, it was a really short, sudden breakdown that my dad had. That's the only way I kind of explain it. And very quickly after changing behaviors, he went to the doctors, got prescribed antidepressants. Um, 
very shortly after that, I'm talking a couple of days, he made a serious attempt on his life. And um, he recovered that from that luckily, because I think if we lost him on that first attempt, it would have been a lot harder because it was so, so quick. But when he recovered, we almost thought that everything would go back to normal. Like it was just the medication. It was just a blip. He would snap out of it. All of these negative associations with it. Um, but he never did. And he ended up, you know, being sectioned into a psychiatric ward. And that was our, our first real exposure to mental illness. You know, seeing my dad in a, a situation with people with borderline personality disorder, schizophrenia, um, psychosis, you know, and the first exposure that I'd ever seen of a mental, of a mental health ward was on a film, you know, or, um, something you saw on TV. Um, and he just never really recovered from that initial, initial breakdown. And sort of six months after that initial breakdown was when he took his own life. Um, and, and yeah, for me, it was, I, I never dealt with it very well at all because I couldn't understand it. Um, with suicide comes a lot of guilt, comes a lot of anger, um, comes a lot of unanswered questions. The question why just eats away at you every single day. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of, me personally, I ignored it for the first two, three years. Um, when I say ignore, yeah, when well, I ignore, ignore it, yeah. it was like distract from it. Like, um, so I didn't ignore it. I was very emotional, but I was emotional in my own time and in my own space. So I would start a business, I would buy a new car, I would um, go out with my friends and joke and laugh at the pub and drink beer and come home and cry. And, you know, a lot of the emotions that I was struggling with was when I was in the car on my own or at home on my own. Um, so I found the first couple of years was just distractions, distractions, distractions. And then um, I personally was in quite a low place and I needed help. And that help came in the form of a, a therapist and for me, that was then the real journey of, of starting to answer those questions. Um, and I'm sure we can unpack it a lot more, but it still took me a good sort of seven years to, to publicly start speaking about it. And is it fair to say that your conditioning as, as a man and also in this line of this family line where mental illness wasn't showing up, um, that you just wouldn't ask for help? Or was that just out of your vocabulary to kind of say, I'm struggling and I, I need help? I believe it was. And I believe as well, I struggled to know where to get help. Like, you right. know, me and my mum are very close, but I didn't want to talk to her in as, I talked to her, but not in as much detail as maybe I needed to, because I didn't want to burden her. She just lost her husband. Um, I went to see a doctor and got, you know, pushed forward for a counseling session. And at that time it was too early. I wasn't ready. And, um, you know, even looking at my friends, they're all there ready to talk to me, but I just wasn't ready to talk to them. Um, so yeah, I think it was, it was at that point, a big part of it was, I don't want to seek help. I want to, I do what my dad did, right? I want to show everyone that I'm perfect, that I'm happy, that I'm fine to kind of mask what's going on inside. And so looking back, do you suspect that your dad had stuff sort of going on internally a lot longer than you, you, you actually think based on, um, what that, that short span of time that you describe where things deteriorated? Yeah, and the way I kind of look at it now is, is, is you know, it was 11 years um, on the 4th of March, so 11 years has just gone. And um, there's two ways that I approach my dad's suicide. Number one is, is understanding. So understanding was when it first happened, I didn't understand it. You know, it was why, why has he done that? You know, he had this, he had that. 
And the way I understood it was I got in a low place myself and I could start to see, wow, I can understand why people can get here. Um, you know, suicide is selfish. Like that was what you're conditioned as well when, when, when you're kind of growing up. Um, so understanding and also, as you said, knowing that my dad was very unwell. My dad didn't want to die. My dad felt like he was a burden to all of us. He still loved us. Um, but he was very unwell and he didn't get the help that he needed. So he obviously had a lot going on that we didn't know about. Um, and again, I don't think that's our fault because we wasn't educated to understand and spot the signs. Um, and then the second thing is acceptance, accepting that I'll never know why. I'll never know what was going on in my dad's mind the day that he did it. And when I was trying to answer every question, that's when it becomes unbearable because I'm never going to get the answers to every question. Um, and you were trying to answer them sort of in your own head, you know, just swirling round and round rather than kind of hearing yourself speak and getting the support to, to kind of decipher what was going on in your head. And yeah. so if you keep it in, right, that's where it blows up even more. And I mean, I, I'm just saying this is from what I maybe understand, but this may not be correct. Um, my dad, I've, I've, over the last year, two years, I've met a lot of people with OCD. Now, my conditioning around OCD, even the first time I ever delivered a talk was, if you struggle with OCD, you're clean, you want stuff in the right orders, that's OCD. Yeah. And then since I've been on this sort of journey, I've met people with OCD, intrusive thoughts, and you know, different versions of, of the illness. And my dad ticks a lot of those boxes. Like my dad was very obsessive um, in the fact that he ran every day, twice a day, but he had to run. There was a story that my mum told me when, when my brother was just born and she was struggling, like as a newborn, you know, to deal with it. And she said to him, I need your help. And he was like, I need to go for a run. She was like, no, if you go for a run, like your, your bag's going to be packed and all of this. She never did do that, but he went for a run. He had to go for a run. Every day he had to run, write it in his book. Now, back then, that was my dad being a dedicated athlete, like sure, strong mentality. Um, and even his best friend said to me a couple of weeks ago, he had the strongest mentality that, that he ever knew. Like he's never met anyone with such a strong mentality as my dad, which kind of played in my mind a bit because how can you have such a strong mentality and take your own life? Um, so I don't, I don't know. That's kind of a, a question that I, I will never ever answer, but speaking to a lot of people with OCD, I believe my dad may have struggled with that too. And in hindsight, and I want to go into just your journey of, of recovering from this, but was there a, a, a trigger? Because you, you said su suddenly things changed and he was sectioned and that's quite an extreme difference from what you're describing beforehand. In your mind, do you recognize now in hindsight that something triggered that to, to sort of move in that way? Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's a combination of, you know, my dad just probably ignored, 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 distracted. Like my dad was always busy. He worked in the evenings. He worked in the day. He ran. He, you know, he, yep. he never switch off. Himself and yeah. And I'm almost like, is that him just having these, this stuff going on? And I've got to do this, do this, do this. And all of a sudden, it becomes unbearable. And you know, he broke. Um, there's combinations of things like losing some money in the in the recession. Um, nothing major, but. Again, my dad was very obsessed with money, you know, saving money. The reason, the reason why I do a lot, I started my own business was my dad saved for an early retirement at 50 and he took his own life at 45. 
So he was super, super protective and obsessed over saving money. And then he never got to where he wanted to be. Um, so like that, I think there's a combination. My nan got diagnosed with cancer, like his mum. I, th- I think, yeah, I think there was a combination of stuff that happened that maybe caused him to have that break. But the, the scary thing for me and everyone involved in, in this story is just how quick it was. It was so quick from him being the dad that we all knew to being the only way I was explaining is like a zombie, just someone completely out of character and different to, to what he was. I mean, and so I imagine just that period of time must have been terrifying for you, say, you know, describing that you'd only seen sort of a mental institution on TV or, or all the kind of stigmatized views of what mental illness looks like. And now here is your dad in those environments, essentially. Um, what, what did you learn at that time? Well, it's, it's, it's one of those where, again, you're just kind of reacting to the situation. Um, but, but yeah, but I mean, again, everyone has a different experience, but the experience my dad in a mental health unit was horrible. It was, it was cold, it was plastic, it was highly medicated, it was um, not a nice place, like not a nice environment. And I almost put myself in that position. I'm a dad now, and I think to myself, if I was in that environment, and my kids were visiting me, my wife was visiting me. I don't know, I don't know where my dad was at. And I think my dad being that guy that doesn't want to talk about his emotions and, and kind of you know bottling it up, now having the spotlight on him and him internally judging himself being in this situation. Yeah. I don't know whether that helped. Yeah. My dad was very holistic. You know, my dad, he never drunk, he never he never took paracetamol, he would meditate, he would say, drink water, you know, he was he did Reiki. He did, you know, he was, he was, a, he was a runner. So I don't know if that environment helped him because it was highly medicated. It was very sterile. You know. Yeah. And that's something we could do a whole podcast just on the mental health system, right? And how it doesn't necessarily encourage recovery, but can stigmatize people who are struggling by essentially creating environments to help people feel ill rather mm. than that holistic method of how do we support you to be your best self? Mm. And I think the biggest, really good, and I think the biggest takeaway, just now you've said it, is how sounds terrible, but how normal my dad looked in that environment. Mm. That for me now, I've never thought of it this way. Looking back, that is the face of mental health. That in that environment, everyone who struggles with mental illness, we've been conditioned look this certain way. That they are erratic. There's people out there that would scream and shout, and yeah. you know. Do, do behaviors that you would label as someone who was struggling mentally. Then there's people like my dad and a few others that would just keep themselves, themselves do crosswords, you know, sit there and people would question, why are they in here? And I think that for me is the real overlook of, of mental health. It, it's not just one face. It's not just one stereotype. It can affect anyone. Absolutely. Um, and so you, you experience the shock and obviously it tears your family apart, I can imagine, uh, just the, the, the shock of it. Uh, you, you begin grieving and this is what people, there's misconceptions about grieving as well, like that there should be a time frame or once you've hit these seven steps, then, you know, in a particular order, then you're good, you know. Um, what have you learned? And I imagine it still hits you, you know, so I want to have total empathy for, for the journey you've been on. But you specifically described seven years of going through a bit of a loop and a cycle. How do you, now that you've been through it, how would you explain to someone else, I guess, what that grief process could be like? Yeah, it's, it's as you said, it's, it's a complete 
it's this, isn't it? Yeah. It's um, first year, you know, terrible, but you're kind of showing everyone you're okay. The first year is very reactive, isn't it? It's very much like just trying to deal with it. And then um, what's, what's funny is like year seven, eight, nine, um, I felt I was okay, but my wife was like, you're, you're, you're closing off. You're oh, like, you're, you're, down. yeah, you're sharp. And I'm like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Um, I'm talking about it now. I'm out there in the workplace and et cetera. Talk, and she sort of noticed a difference. 10 years came around and I was like, I'm, I'm going to be fine. Last year was the hardest year that I've had for a long, 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 long time. And I don't know whether it's because it's 10 years. It's kind of an iconic number. I don't know what got into my mind. Um, Whereas the 11 years that has just passed was a really positive experience where I felt that me doing the work that I'm doing, I feel very close to my dad. I feel like, you know, it's horrible what happened to him, but like your whole podcast is about this. It's, you know, what happened to my dad is hopefully from social media and talks, inspiring other people to go and get that help that they need. And I, I, this year I felt very proud of him and close to him and, um, next year I'll probably feel crap again. <laughs> it's like, um, you don't, you don't know. And this, this one guy told me a really good way of putting it as, um, imagine every year of grief, you go to the beach and you're there and the waters, the waves are sort of spl- splashing you. And the first year you turn up in just your swim shorts, you're not prepared. And like the waves are splashing. Next year you turn up and you've got, I don't know, a coat for afterwards. The next year you turn up, you've got a towel, a coat, a change of clothes. And then afterwards, you're more prepared for the anniversaries that roll around. Um, but yeah, like you said, you know, someone says to me, it's been 11 years, you should be over it by now. You can't put time on grief. It's, no, it's- and, and that analogy is actually really beautiful in describing what it looks like to build resilience. Mm. It isn't a perfect, it's ex- an experiment, essentially, on what your uh, emotional health needs in order to cope with different circumstances. Yeah. And yes, the more you've maybe been through that, the more you know personally for you, I need time out, I need to keep, speak to my wife, I need the therapist, whatever those things are, the, the, the raincoat, the towel, whatever it might be. Um, but essentially, it's going to be unique to you. Now, there's something I've toyed with, because you know a little bit of my story, so, so being raised in a cult and, and um, all sorts of things that have happened to me. And I speak on stages and talk about my story and essentially have done, I think, what you've done, which is find some nugget of purpose in the pain, right? So, so some nugget of like, okay, this, this terrible thing has happened. How do I now help others to live a better life? You're essentially doing that as well. But there's this double-edged sword, isn't there, between putting ourselves out there. You described feeling closer to your dad, feeling like there's some kind of purpose and message, right? But the flip side can be re-traumatizing ourselves or continually repeating the story of the tough times so that that story gets stuck in our brain a little bit. And I sometimes feel both and I'm, I'm mostly like um, mission focused. And then also, then that one person will be like, don't you think that because you now had this vulnerability hangover and you did the big talk and you're crashing out, like, are you just a sucker for pain? <laughs> you know, um, what are your views just on the, that duality? It's a really good question. And again, it's like you say, it's the journey of learning it. It's um, the first time I did it. I don't think I, after all, the first time I shared, I never shared again for like six months after that. Um, but yeah, like some, I remember, you know, mental health awareness week is probably the same for you. It's, you know, you need a oh. week. Shut up. Every day, every day, yeah. Um, 
It's, it's hard and it's a really good question. Every time I talk, I learn something more about myself, which is a positive. Yeah. Um, especially if you do Q&A or podcasts. Like podcasts, I always say like therapy, right? You're asking me questions. I'm digging deeper. I'm like unpacking more, more stuff. Yeah. Um, and sometimes when you do a talk and someone asks a question, oh, and then you start to learn more and refine your talk, etc. Um, but yeah, I completely understand. It's sometimes... It's sometimes hard to always talk about it. It's sometimes I feel like, am I so obsessed with this mission now that it's taken over as well? Like I have obsessive traits as well, which are very serving in, you know, if I want to do something, I'll try and make it happen. But is this now becoming my life? And if something, you know, it, it's, it's a really, really good question I've never thought about. But in terms of the balance, I do find it hard to balance both. Um, but number one thing I try and do is put me first. And again, that's very unnatural in the way I'm conditioned. Like McGregor's are very much people pleasers. Um, my dad was, my mum is, um, you know, we put other people first and that's us being, you know, that's empaths. That's just our natural kind yeah. of conditioning. But I'm learning over the last few years that I need to come first. For me to be the best dad, the best husband, the best, you know, person that can try and tell my story and help others. If I'm not in a good place, then that's not going to happen. So I try and put a little bit of time aside for me as much as I can as well. So for you, and I know everyone's different, what are the maybe the top three things that you are your go-tos for, for whatever you do to look after yourself, to put yourself first? Exercise, so running, running a lot. At the moment, I'm, I'm doing, at the end of May, I'm doing eight marathons in eight days in eight cities for, um, for like children's mental health, so raising money for, for teachers and um, to, bring, to bring awareness to one in eight children now have a diagnosed mental disorder. So it's hence the eight marathons in eight cities. Um, sure which again, the obsessive pool coming in. Yeah, I'm running, I'm just thinking like, oh my. <laughs> and again, it's like, you know, I, I do feel close to my dad when we run. So we used to run together. And those moments with me and my dad was when we're running, that's when you're talking. You're like side to side, you're having a conversation. I learned a lot from my dad in those moments. Um, whereas when you're at home eating dinner or whatever it is, especially nowadays, there's so many more distractions. So again, it sounds a bit hippie, but sometimes going out for a run, I feel quite close to my yeah. dad. Um, meditation helps, but now I see running as almost a form of meditation because it's kind of me getting rid of everything and, and just going for a run. Journaling really helps. So I don't, I've done structured journaling, but normally it's just a pen and a paper now and just writing down whatever's going on in here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Out. And then what I find is, is I can then see it from a different perspective. It almost doesn't look like my problems anymore. Like, as you know, when it's up here, it's oh. and it's on a piece of paper. It's like, okay, I can maybe do that and figure it out. Um, nutrition, like again, just simple things. If I'm eating the wrong, the wrong foods, I'm not hundred percent strict, but 80% of the time, if I'm eating well, I feel a lot better. Um, and, and then I still see, and I still see my therapist. Um, not as often, but if I need her, she's there and, you know, I, I feel like I'm always learning. I still need to learn more and more. So she's always there to, to help as well. And is she a specific like bereavement counselor or, or a regular counselor? We can all do a bit of bereavement stuff, but you know what I mean? Like, did you go like, actually, I need somebody who gets this piece. And, and I don't know how you would explain Anne. Um, she, she would probably, she did a weekend holistic therapy course. That's all she's done in terms of qualifications. Okay. Um, but Anne is very spiritual. 
um, which I was drawn towards. So for some reason, I was described, my wife, we wasn't married then, but she said, you need to go see this lady. She's like a witch. She knows more about you than you know about yourself. Mm-hmm. And at 21, I was like, oh, I need to find out more about this. But what Anne does is she gives massage as well. So um, she gives massage and you give donations. So me being the tight 21-year-old who had a back problem was like, this is perfect. I can go get a massage, put money in a pot and then leave. Yeah. Um, but I was drawn to the whole, she's a witch. She knows more about you than you know about yourself. And I think at 21, I was very lost, like very confused in a really bad place. Um, and yeah, I tried a psychiatrist. I tried a counselor. I tried a bereavement counselor. Um, and Anne was the only one that could get me to open up and share and, and talk. And I think what Anne has that, you know, those other counselors maybe didn't have is experience, compassion, understanding, um, and it doesn't matter for me what qualification she has on the wall. It's more about she's been through a lot and she knows a lot. And I was just drawn towards her. Um, so I, love that. That. I love that so much because I actually, because I am a clinician and I hear other clinicians in the mental health space sort of bad mouthing, like the fact that so many people are in the mental health space who don't have qualifications. I've had it. I've had it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I imagine. And, um, It really makes me sad because I actually think that when we only think clinicians can deal with mental health, that we're we're actually stigmatizing things more. Mm -hmm. Like we're not, if we normalize the conversation, it's about all of us. It's it's about finding that mate or that someone that you can open up to. And and a lot of what the work that I do with leaders and, and businesses is just having empathy and creating space. Like you don't need to know all the signs and symptoms of everything in order to create space and have some human connection. Um, two more questions. I know you've got places to be and I'm so thrilled that you're, you're here. I, I, could chat, I could chat forever on this. This is good. Yeah, no, I know. We both could. That's why I'm watching the time. Um, first of all, where can people find you? So if they want you to speak or get involved with, with uh, them, where can they find you? I'm pretty much active all across social media. So LinkedIn, Instagram, um, Facebook, all of that's pmcgregor.com or just search for Paul McGregor. Um, even TikTok, are you, are you doing anything on TikTok? I'm not, are you? Yeah, TikTok's a great platform. Um, I need to look you up. <laughs> TikTok's, TikTok's growing. Um, and then my website is pmcgregor.com. Um, the other way of potentially finding out a little bit more about what we're doing is I've just launched a, a digital platform called Every Mind at Work, which is an application for businesses um, to help their employees' mental health. And we also do online courses, e-learning, um, that are interactive and a variety of workshops as well. So that's the other one as well. That's so exciting. You're so busy. So I'm glad you're also running and looking after yourself and your dad. <laughs> oh my God, it's all happening. Um, and so finally, if someone is struggling, I, I feel like we just need to go there. If somebody is, is struggling with um, their, their thoughts, their thinking, and perhaps on, the, on paper has that perfect thing they've, they've curated for the world to see, but inside they're struggling in some way. Um, what are, what's your advice? What, what are the first steps that perhaps they could take? And I realize this is coming from a place where your dad sort of wasn't able to take them effectively enough, but what do you think? Or, or like, when should they? Cause it's gotta be early, hasn't it? Yeah. I think that's, that's the big part of that question is the awareness to know that you need that help. Like yes. that for me was the hardest part. And I think that was for my dad, the hardest part. Um, so the awareness to actually step forward and say, I need help is always, I say, the hardest step. It's always the biggest step. So if, if they can do that, they're in a place where they feel like they need some help. As you said, the earlier they can get it, the better, rather than 
waiting and waiting and waiting and it gets worse and then it's harder to deal with. And then secondly, I think mental health is so individual. It's like try, you know, as much as you possibly can um, and find out what works for you. Like I tried a lot and a lot of it didn't work and a lot of it did. But now I've got them learnings that I can say, all right, this really helped me. So I need to focus on here, whereas this didn't. So I'm not going to try that again. And I think mental health in particular has been very much dictated. It's like, you know, you need to do meditation. You need to go to therapy. Men need to cry. Actually, some guys don't want to cry. It's, and then they're judging themselves. They don't want to cry either. So like, exactly. yeah. And, and, and then if we're being told you need to cry, you need to cry. And now we're judging ourselves because we can't cry. Um, so I think it's so individual. So just try, try and see what works for you. And then, you know, focus in on, on what helps. Um, and, and, you know, even with therapy, for me, the beginning stages was writing it down. I didn't want to tell anyone, but writing it down was my way of expressing it, even though it was just me reading it back and then throwing it away. Then it was telling someone close to me. Then it was going and seeing a therapist. So it's those kind of stages as well. So as long as you're expressing it, I think that's the main the main. Part. I love that. It's, it's a build up. It's not a one size fits all. Try and test things and equally, um, go like go to therapy or whatever it might be from a maintenance perspective. If you're playing team sport and you're hanging out with the guys, like try and practice courage by being the first one to ask a real question that's really going to get underneath the kind of banter level, you know. And and you'd be surprised uh, what comes back. And I imagine you feel that when you start, then people are like, oh, this is a safe space where I actually can talk. Um, yeah. So there's just so many things we can do now. Um, I'm going to put all of your uh, contact details into the show notes so people can contact you. Paul, thank you so much for your time and good luck with everything. I know we're going to be running into each other on the circuit, yeah. but look after you. And you. Thank you so much for having me on. No problem. Thanks for listening to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. Please do subscribe and review on iTunes. Every comment makes a difference. We really appreciate hearing from you. And please do get in touch through petrabelzebor.com if you're interested in any training, coaching, therapy, or just to join the community and get more information on ways that you can build your own resilience. Until next time.